The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, we're thankful you're here with us today and uh, thankful for those who are watching online. Uh, Today we are wrapping up our series, our deadly series, and some of you are uh, very glad about that. You've heard about your sin for the last seven weeks. Not that you won't ever hear about it again, but uh, it's kind of one of those things, one after the other, it hits you pretty hard, and today's no different, so just get ready. Uh, It's going to be interesting. So uh, we're looking at the subject of pride today, and uh, last week Dave led us in understanding the sin of envy, did a great job just helping us to see what that looks like. Looks like this quote from uh, Dangerous Virtues, the book we've been going through here in this series, John Kosler, he kind of gives an eye-opening quote that ties together last week's topic of envy with this week's topic of pride. He says, it's hard to see where one ends and the other begins. Does envy lead to pride? Or do the assumptions of pride create an environment where where envy takes root? And the answer is yes. And so these, both of these things can be seen and both of these uh, scenarios come together where envy leads to pride, pride leads to envy, it doesn't matter, it's all sin. And so we can understand that in a clear way. Now, uh, when I was thinking about pride and kind of reading the book and uh, relating to that a little bit and talking to my wife, I was trying to think of, uh, okay, what are some areas in our lives where we see pride and maybe in general where pride has shown itself? And I couldn't help but uh, my, my wife actually brought to my attention uh, thinking through uh, American Idol. And I'll know American Idol's been around for like 100 years now, I think. Uh, but American Idol... Uh, <laughs> Some of you maybe have watched it before and you watch it at the end where like the final rounds are, where things are like really cut and clean. I only used to watch, I don't watch anymore, but I only used to watch the first rounds. Now I don't know about you, but the first rounds to me are the most entertaining. Now this is coming from somebody who likes things a little messed up. Like I like to watch a movie that doesn't end the way you thought it would. Some of you in this room, I'll know you like the nice bow tied on everything and I'll go ahead and leave it where it should be and you can even think about how that Hallmark movie ended up with all of them being married and living the rest of their lives together, all that junk. No, that's not what I like. I like where stuff's just all screwed up and just messed up and that's where my American Idol first rounds comes in because if you've ever seen it and if you've never seen it, uh, you're welcome. I'm not playing a video because it can be painful to watch. Uh, the reality is people get up on that stage in front of the judges, in front of of professionals, and they start belting out a tune. And they worked on this for a while. Well, you wouldn't think so, but they really did. And they got up there and started singing, and the reality is it wasn't beautiful music. It wasn't uh, anything presentable to the judges. It was a mess. And it was just a complete, utter mess. And when I, when I see those videos, and it was painful even to watch this week in my office, uh, and so I decided to spare you. Uh, but the reality is, when you see those videos, sometimes you wonder yourself, who failed these people, right? Why is it that they can stand up so confidently and belt out something that doesn't resemble whatever it's supposed to sound like and be totally confident in it. 
Now, some have things going on where it's just, it's just not, they're not able to really understand that. And, but some, it comes down to, I think, our society has kind of created some of these situations, right? We, we get to this point as parents or uh, teachers or coaches, and we tell these kids, you can do anything. You can do it. Maybe you college students have heard it before. You can do anything, right? Or maybe you're amazing at blank and you fill in the blank and the reality is you're, you're really not. Like I've seen some of the stuff my kids have brought home from school and, I, and I'm like, Am I, I guess as a dad I have to compliment it. But it's not really good, right? <laughs> it's not. And we fill with these ideas. Oh, I'm such an amazing artist. No, you're not. You're really not. I mean, I, before I go off on like my own kids' stuff, I used to draw like pictures of like kind of stick figures, and they're drawn out, and then their hands were their arms, and there was pointy things that were like hand arms. So I can't knock my kids, but the reality is we tell them things like, you're the best at blank. And if we all watch the game that they just played, we know they're not the best, right? And we're all being honest here today, right? And the reality is I've been told that at times, we've said it at times, and sometimes it is absolutely lying. But we've, been he- we, we've kind of been fed, okay? We've been fed with this heavy dose of confidence building, right? We, we don't want our kids to have bad self-esteem. We don't want them to try and do good, so we pump them up, right? But the problem with this is we have an unrealistic view of ourselves and our own abilities. This confidence that our parents, teachers, coaches, and others had hoped to instill in us takes an evil turn because we're all humans and we're all sinful by nature. And what it develops into is something I like to call, or not really like to call, but I call me monsters. And you look at it in your own kids, and they're all about themselves oftentimes, right? You look at yourself in the mirror before, after yelling at your own kid, why did you do this? Why did you say? And then you look in the mirror, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm the same way. Me monsters, right? And so it's a very deadly sin. It's called pride. Over the past six weeks, we've looked at deadly sins masked in the more acceptable counterparts. So today we're looking at pride disguised as confidence. Pride disguised as confidence. The author of this book, Dangerous Virtues, Kostler says, pride is a noun, but it also functions as a verb. Pride isn't just about how we feel. It's something we do. We are proud. Many so-called influencers and experts are really pumped up lately about pride and they wouldn't say it outright, maybe that it's pride, but it's all about me. Jessica Tracy, a professor specializing in human emotions, encourages people to embrace pride. She states, find a way to feel good about your best me self. Anybody hear a statement like that lately? The whole me self, we even talked about it a little bit a few weeks ago. The idea, it's about you, Right? And if I'm comfortable with me, then I can be acceptable to everybody else. And if I'm comfortable with my own skin, then I'm good. And everybody else has a more pleasant experience because I like me. And hopefully you like me too. 
But the reality is if we're obsessed with me, with myself, with I, then we really don't get it. We become prideful people. We become more prideful. So in case that sounds appealing, please don't do it. In our society today, pride can be considered a virtue. We want to be confident in what we do. We don't want to live in fear. We want to face challenges and tackle them with energy and excitement. We don't want to wallow in self-pity and poor self-esteem. All these things aren't bad. We, we want to, I mean, confidence is a good thing. God can give us confidence in certain areas, so we're not supposed to just wallow around saying, woe is me. But where does this go wrong? At what point do we cross over from healthy confidence into sinful pride? How are we able to see this invisible line that we shouldn't cross? What are some habits that we can develop to help us along the way? Well, I'm glad you asked all those questions because we're gonna cover them. We don't need to look any further than the word of God and then those who have gone before us that can give us some wisdom and maybe some warnings along the way. But first we can look at the fact that pride is not always evil in scripture. When we hear the word pride, we all, almost always think of sin. But first we need to really look at the fact that it's not always evil. Proverbs 17, six, uh, some of you grandparents can echo this and probably amen this. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. This is pride in family and their children and grandchildren. But the difference between good pride and bad pride is actually the focus of the pride, right? Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you, not your own mouth. A stranger, not your own lips. So we have a warning here, but also a reality that it's okay to accept praise for the right reason, and as long as we point that praise and recognize who gave us these abilities. It's not bad to excel and to attempt to be really good at something or more than one thing. But the question is, where is that praise going? Are we just letting it rest on us or is it going to God? There's also things like false humility, which can be pride as well where we, we're really good at something, we probably even know we're good at it, and someone says, man, you did awesome, or you did this, or you did that, and, and what you say is like, no, I didn't. I'm not really that good, or we self you know, and it's like, oh, that's not, I'm not. But in reality, we're like, hey, keep it coming, you know? I'm not very good, right? I'm horrible. I didn't really work very hard on that. No. And we're just like, wanting more. And so even in the, these false humility, even in the quiet moments, not this bragging pride, but even in these quiet moments, we can be prideful. Throughout Corinthians, Paul boasts in the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 7, 4, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. So he's prideful in people. But Paul is also prideful about the work that he does. Romans chapter 15, 17, and 18. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He was proud of the fact that Christ worked through him to bring people to himself. And so you can be proud of these things that God is accomplishing. He even boasts in his own weakness. He's, he's prideful of the fact that he's weak. It's kind of an interesting thing. He says, if I'm gonna boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness because the power of Christ lives through him in 2 Corinthians 11.30. 
Now, we can't spend too much time on this because I don't think many of you, and I know I don't, I don't really struggle with godly pride, okay? That's not where I'm struggling, man. I'm just, I'm just too give glory to God too much, you know? But the reality is I struggle with a lot more, and we'll get to that here in a second. Pride, it was Satan's premier sin. A simple definition of pride is a high, inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, superiority, whether it's cherished in the mind or is displayed in the conduct. So we can even be prideful and sin in our own brains. Our pride doesn't have to be, it's not sin just when it comes out in action. We can sin in our pride in our own thoughts and the things we think about ourselves. So when it comes to this, oh man, when it comes to this, I said I was gonna tell myself a little bit. This uh, story is one that just is totally uh, a, a prideful situation that I found myself in. So, I mean, we could tell stories about yourselves. If anybody wanna come on the stage, you guys can tell one. Uh, no, okay. Uh, so, I love going to Miller Springs. I've said this before. I love taking my dog, my dog Rocky. We go out and we run. And we just go to Miller Springs, explore. I love going out into the woods and even preparing for these sermons. I'll preach to the rocks before I preach to you guys up here. So it's just a lot of fun getting out there. But uh, I, got, I got music going. Actually, most of these songs we sung this morning are all on my playlist and I'm blaring them in my ears as I run and my dog's behind me. Make sure he's not trailing off and going his own way and he's right behind me. And uh, here we go on the trails. And here's what's crazy. I can be blaring worship music, thinking about a sermon, even on pride, and actually think to myself while I'm doing all that, huh, I'm out here running. I'm getting exercise. Man, I'm really good at this. I'm just running. I go for miles. My dog's with me. My dog's tired before me. Look at me. Aren't I great? My wife's back there nodding her head. The reality is I can really feel good about myself even hearing worship music and thinking about other people who aren't doing this or maybe not as good as me and I'm running along. Well, here's the deal. God loves, right, loves to put us in our place. So here I am one day running and I think I have a picture of it on the screen. I'm running and literally, this is Friday. I took this picture Friday. I, I, I was running back there with Rocky and I was like, I'm preaching this sermon. I have to stop at this spot. Some of you might recognize this spot. On the other side of the water is where the dam water lets out. Did I just say that? The, the water of the dam lets out. Uh, and they, the, the water comes out, and, uh, and you're over there fishing, right? And a lot of people fishing on the rocks, and uh, I'm on the other side. And you see that it clears out, like all of a sudden there's no trees. Well, I'm thinking these great thoughts about myself running along, and here I go, boom, 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 and suddenly a root just comes out of the ground and grabs my ankle, and it makes me fall, and I literally, not like stumble, like I've stumbled out there before. Every time I go out there, I almost fall, and I catch myself. This was face down in the dirt with Saturday morning with all the spectators fishing. <laughs> and my dog even, if my dog could laugh, he'd be laughing, right? And here I am, and you know how you do, you look around and boom, I'm out into the woods. God has an amazing way of taking us down with our pride and even, even these moments where I'm supposed to be thinking about 
even this sermon, and like, uh, it didn't just happen Friday. This, okay, that picture was taken Friday. I fell a few months ago. Anyway, Proverbs 16, 18, and 19. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Jesus makes this bold revelation when it comes to pride in Luke 18, 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, pride has led to the destruction of so much. When it comes to companies, whether it comes to nations, when it comes to families, whether it comes to friendships, pride is something, a cancer that gets in and destroys things. So let me ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you think of someone who is prideful or who? Now, don't go elbowing your, your neighbor, spouse. What or who comes to your mind when we say the word pride? I have some pictures up on the screen. I didn't want to pick on like actual people, which I obviously I put my own picture up there. But uh, let's check out these pictures. Anybody relate to anybody in this these pictures, uh, we got Dwight Schrute, we got Tony Stark, Dolores Umbridge. I was trying to cover everybody. John Kreese, uh, Regina George, uh, Mean Girls. And uh, so it's kind of interesting. All these people represent prideful, brash, in-your-face people, right? But why do we immediately think of people like that? Now, that's just the most obvious form of pride. But why isn't it that we have a picture of ourselves. Why don't we picture, you know, we'll go in the mirror and be like, oh, yeah, that's the most prideful person I know. But instead, we choose these things that are even detached from us, even detached from reality, fictional characters. Oh, they're prideful. But the reality is pride shows itself in lots of different ways, not just those who are braggy, not just the obnoxious, but in other ways. Shannon Soar, one of our pastors, he gave some excellent insight in our staff meeting the other day. I had to share five things that show our pride maybe in subtle ways. We quickly think of our own needs before considering those of others. We assume that our stream of consciousness is as interesting to the world as it is to ourselves. We believe every privilege we have is well-deserved because of all, all of our hard work and our discipline and sacrifice alone. We are unteachable, unwilling to receive advice or criticism from even our closest friends. Perhaps there is no one that we really trust as a real friend because, frankly, uh, no one measures up. All forms of pride, they may be subtle, but the reality is it's pride and it's ugly. By taking a look at the first humans, we can see a great picture or a bad picture of pride. Look at Genesis chapter three. We can see in the first six verses a story of pride, a story of how Satan comes at Eve. And in verse one, Genesis three, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And she kind of added this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was a desire to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here we go. The first interaction between Satan and the first created people. We see the serpent, the most crafty. And what did the most crafty on the face of the planet do? What did he use? He used the temptation of pride. And even in the beginning of his dialogue, at the end of verse one, what does he say? Did God actually fill in the blank? All of us, including young people, you get in these situations where it's like, well, God really didn't say that, did he? God, God doesn't want me to be unhappy. He, didn't, he couldn't have actually said that. There must be another translation. Maybe they just got it wrong here. And God didn't really say this. You do that, you're falling into the same trap that the serpent set up for Eve. Did God actually? He doesn't want me to be unhappy, does he? Eve's posture toward God changed. In verse six, you see that Eve decided what was good. And if you look at Genesis one and two, who decided what was good in Genesis one and two? God did. But in chapter three, in the serpent's deception, he tricks her and allows her to embrace her pride and then she turns to get to decide what is good. Did God actually, did he really say that? And starts questioning and she chooses what's good, not the word of God and not God himself. So pride is revealed in our narcissistic behaviors. I don't have to spend too much time on this, but you think about social media. You think about what you post, and I'm trying maybe even this week to think about what am I gonna post on social media and maybe pause and pray. How about we all do this during this time of year, especially this week, pause and pray before we post anything. And ask ourselves, is this pride? Because I know for me, seven, eight times out of 10, it probably has something to do with pride. Maybe not directly, but indirectly with pride. And if you wanna ruin your marriage, get prideful about what you do and have a scoreboard in your head. The reality is I did this early on in marriage and it was just a horrible mistake to think that, man, I did this, I did that, or whatever. And it's just like, especially when, when we started having kids, like how dumb are you <laughs> keeping a scoreboard when your wife's over there struggling, you know, having children? And here I am trying to be prideful about loading the dishwasher. What an idiot. <laughs> but that's what pride does. Pride takes these things and takes what should be beautiful and a mutual existence and a mutual serving one another and turns into a mess and it ends up being a scoreboard that really doesn't help anybody. Pride destroys marriages. 
We see this played out in the book of Esther. If you want to turn over there to Esther chapter 6. Never really heard pride taught in this way because usually the focus of the story is on Esther, right? And saving God's people. And here's Esther, uh, the subject of this actual book, who was used by God and, and Mordecai used by God to save the people from destruction. And they were heading toward destruction and the king realized, uh, hey, Mordecai saved my life one day. So all this happened and, and the king was gonna honor Mordecai but there was this evil man named Haman. And Haman was like the king's second in command and he was the one who kind of helped advise the king. And so in Esther 6, we see uh, the king realizing Mordecai and what he had done for him. And early in, in chapter 6, we see the king deciding he was going to honor Mordecai. But Haman wasn't in the room. <laughs> And Haman comes along after the king had decided this, and it's an interesting encounter. Verse four says, the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is out there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. Verse six, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Oh wow, what a setup, right? And Haman said to himself, who should the king desire to honor more than me? Wow, that's your answer? In his head, he couldn't think of anybody in the entire nation that the king would want to honor than himself. What pride. And Haman said to the king, for the man and the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse and the king has ridden, and whose had a royal crown is set, let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man. <laughs> you can tell he really thought about this, right? Let him dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let him lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry. Take the robes and the horse, if you have said, and go to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's date, uh, gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse. Oh man, imagine being Haman. And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, look at what happens. Then Mordecai returned to the king's date, gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Haman had created this whole scenario in his head. The king wants to honor me. Oh, great. Let all this be done. And then Haman ends up being hung on the same gallows he created for Mordecai. So Haman was an evil, evil man. But how well can we relate to this? Oftentimes, we can't think of anyone else that should be honored, right, in a situation. Well, of course I should get praise. Of course I should be recognized. I did all the work. Of course I should be pat on the back or maybe my name in the paper because I scored that touchdown or whatever it is. Of course. And we have this idea that, of course, now some of you don't have that idea. We already covered you, the whole false humility thing, right? But many of us... <laughs> At least in our brains, we might never say it. We think we deserve things. We think we deserve recognition, just like Haman. Spurgeon puts it this way, none are more unjust in their judgments of others than those who have a high opinion of themselves. A high opinion of themselves. 
So we're convicted, right? We're convicted by a lot of things here. I know I am. And sometimes it sounds depressing when we hear about all the horrible pride in our own lives. But we don't, we don't want to leave you there. We can be excited that pride can be overcome, right? It can be overcome. There is a possibility. Kostler says the only solution for sinful pride is the same remedy for all deadly sins. It's the remedy of the cross. So let's look at four things that overcoming pride requires of us. Number one, overcoming pride requires death. Romans 8, 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In order to overcome pride and all these other sins, we need to come to grips with a death that needs to take place in our lives. We need to die to ourselves. My wife helped me understand this a little deeper, uh, even in between services. She said, you know, what we often do is we often, these deadly sins, what we're doing in coming to these things is we're trying to find joy, but it's counterfeit joy. Lust, sloth, greed, all these things, anger, this, all these things, if we say this word or for whatever, it'll make us feel good or, or we eat this thing, it'll make us feel good. We're trying to find joy in reality. What needs to take place is a death to bring us joy. Ironically, we have to die to become happy in Christ. We have to recognize ourselves, our flesh, to be dead to sin. And then we come alive. So overcoming pride requires death, and overcoming pride requires a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This new identity can be seen in Philippians chapter two, if you want to turn over there. Philippians chapter two. If you ever want to see the opposite of pride and really understand what it looks like to be the opposite of prideful, read, memorize, uh, write it on your face. I don't know, I tell it to my junior kids, write it on your face in Sharpie, whatever it is, Philippians chapter two. Just read it, meditate on it every day if you have to because it embodies what it is to be humble. Look at verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look at five. Have this mind among yourselves, which was where? Yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We identify with Jesus, with his death on the cross. We have this new identity so that now we don't have to compete any longer for God's attention or someone else's attention. We don't have to be prideful anymore to try to draw that in because now, because of our identity in Christ, the work is done. The, the opportunity to be right before God is complete. We don't have to strive anymore. We can rest. We don't have to be prideful in all we do because we can rest. Like we said a few weeks ago, that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. 
We don't always have to fight and battle anymore because we see that the battle belongs to the Lord and the battle is won. Number three, overcoming pride requires a thankful attitude. Nice timely statement this week. Michael Ramsey states, thankfulness is a soil in which pride does not easily grow. This week, you're gonna be tempted to be more prideful than you've ever are probably in the entire year. Family comes together, you want them to know about maybe something you did. The accomplishments, I ran that half marathon or whatever it is that you do. Uh, you know, I built this thing or I, I did this or my kid this or whatever and we're just all about, you know, just it's like this week long thing of like, look at me, what I did, right? And in reality, it's like the best opportunity to actually boost Jesus and to share what Jesus is doing in our lives and, and to show that to family and friends. And here's the opportunity, First, Corinthians, First Chronicles 16, 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. This week, we're not called to make known our deeds among the people. We're called to make known his deeds and what he's doing. Maybe it is something he's doing in you and through you, but we're lifting his name up. Number four, overcoming pride requires a servant's heart. As we saw in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, what did Jesus do? He emptied and humbled himself. If anybody deserves to be bowed down to, to be worshiped, to be acknowledged. Here Jesus is, but instead he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Matthew 20, 26 to 28, Jesus puts it in an amazing way. He says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know what this passage comes after? We're going to do this later on today. This right here. This passage where Jesus warns the disciples about not wanting to be great in the world's eyes comes right after he talked about his death, coming death, burial, and resurrection. And what are they obsessed with? Being great. Who's better? Who's the most awesome in the family, right? And here they are right off of his declaration that his blood would be shed, his body would be broken. What are we prone to? Eh, we're prone to pride. Now throughout our lives, and if you've had children, uh, they teach you a lot. And if you've got siblings, can teach you a lot. But man, over the years, God has used my kids to teach me so many things. And I hesitated even uh, sharing the story I'm about to share because I don't want it to come off as like me bragging about my kid. Because I love to brag about my kids. But I want it to come off as me bragging in what Jesus did. So back in May, my oldest daughter had an injury and uh, she hurt her knee. And she's playing volleyball, her favorite sport, loves volleyball, is really good at it. And uh, 
she had some cartilage damage to the point she had to have surgery and had to have the cartilage replaced and she was told she wasn't gonna play volleyball for her junior year. Coming off an MVP season of the team, you know, coming off first team all district, this is like her favorite thing to do. And she's told, no, you can't do it. And so she came to a a decision that she had to make to say, all right, what am I gonna do with this information? And for me, if it was me and basketball and I faced that, I would be like, all right, well, I'm taking this time off. I'm gonna recover. I'm gonna rehabilitate and get better and not have anything to do with my team because I can't deal with that. That's too much. But contrary to what her dad would choose, because of what Jesus continues to do in her life, she actually willingly chose to stay on the team. And not only stayed on the team, but she actually went a little further and became a co-manager on the team. And I think we have a, a couple pictures up here. Uh, here she is on the right, it's a little blurry. She's taken stats for the team. There's other pictures I couldn't find them. I was trying so hard this week to hunt them down, but there's pictures of her on crutches high-fiving her teammates. And this picture that I get in this story that came to my head was just like, wow. What a picture of what we're called to do, especially in moments where things are difficult. We are actually called to serve. And we think we deserve this, we think we deserve that, but in these moments, we're actually called to lay down our pride and to serve others and to give of ourselves. We talk about death, we talk about a death to self. Here's the reality. Christianity by itself is not very attractive because Christianity is actually a call to die. But the reality we can see though, when you get through that death, like we said earlier, the joy comes in the serving. The joy comes in the fact that Christ is glorified. The joy comes when we see other people come into faith and we see them glor- God glorified through it all, even the difficulty, even the tough times. And she did, this is the end of the season, she did get to play a little bit in the back row, so it was just such a cool gift but for us to see this example and for me to learn this from my own kid, my pride can be destroyed as I lay my life down and serve others. Tim Keller says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. So over the past seven weeks, we've studied, analyzed, and been convicted from the word of God concerning the seven deadly sins and many others that have come up about our indulgence to our own desires. I've considered my own failures throughout this series and one song lyric that keeps coming to my head is an old hymn, Come Thou Fount. And the line in the hymn, you may know it as well, which is prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and that's what I am. 
and that's what you are. The word prone, I learned this week, the word prone is actually a medical term that means lying face down. And I'll butcher this next word, supine, I think it is, is face up. When we're prone to wander, when we're prone to do our own thing, the reality is we're not looking up, we're not looking at anything else, and we're not even seeing the Savior for who he is. We are prone, we're prone toward lust, we're prone toward gluttony, we're prone toward greed, we're prone toward sloth, we're prone toward anger, we're prone toward envy, and we are definitely prone toward pride. Sounds depressing, right? Sounds sad, but it doesn't have to be. We can find confidence in these words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this victory. We have this opportunity to be thankful. So as we transition our communion time, I'd just love for you just to take some time here to bow your head and close your eyes. Don't worry about lunch or whatever else, getting your kids, whatever it is. Just focus right now in prayer. And I'd like you guys to take some time to allow the spirit to work in your lives. Maybe you felt convicted today. Maybe you've felt convicted the last seven weeks, like I have. Take some time to get alone between you and God and confess these sins. Maybe some of you in this room have never trusted Christ as your savior. You've never come to a point where you've died to yourself and asked for him to give you new life. Today can be the day. Right here in your seat can be the time and the place to confess to God. We're called when we come to the Lord's Supper to allow God to do work in our lives to make things right. So take a minute to do that. Lord, we're thankful for the conviction that comes from the Spirit. Lord, in this moment where we get ready to remember your sacrifice, Lord, I pray that you will continue to allow us to see that pride was nailed to the cross. These other sins are nailed to the cross. That we have victory through your Son, Jesus. As scripture says, he took a cup when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. As you remember the blood that was shed on the cross, the body that was broken for you on the cross, you take this into consideration that Jesus did this for the disciples at this time. And he wanted us to continue to remember these things, the blood that was shed. So he goes on to say, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Jesus, we are so thankful for the sacrifice, the blood that was poured out on the cross for our dirty, stinking, nasty sin. Lord, we thank you for the body that was broken, Lord, your body that was shred apart, your body that was beaten, your body that was brutalized, Lord, and not just your body, but your soul that had to take the sin of the world. Lord, we thank you for that. We can't help but just thank you. There's nothing else we can do. Take our pride and crush it. Take our sin and destroy it. Allow us to live as people who love others and point people to you this coming week for the rest of our lives. In your name we pray, amen.